This is a Triple J podcast. Hack. Hey, I'm Joe Lauder and you're listening to the Hack podcast. Are you a classical music fan? You might chuck it on to help you study or you got into it because of some beautiful movie soundtrack or game soundtrack even that you just fell in love with. Because apparently classical music is making a comeback and Gen Z is twice as likely to be listening in their daily lives to classical music as older generations. We're going to have a chat about that and find out if classical music is diversifying and opening up in Australia. We're also going to talk about star Australian runner Peter Boll, who's been cleared of doping months after he was suspended for failing a drugs test. He always maintained he was innocent and that it was a false positive and He's been exonerated today, so we're going to find out how things went so wrong that an innocent athlete got accused of doping. Hack. The window for saving it is closing, so it's not enough. We still need to do more. On Triple J. We know that climate change is really threatening the future of the Great Barrier Reef, and we've been told to expect a hot, dry summer coming up. So does it surprise you to hear that the reef is not officially listed as in danger? It's something that the United Nations body has been considering for a while now. They're looking at whether to give the reef this label, label of in danger to spur on more government action. And overnight, it kind of released its decision for now. Angel Parsons is going to break this down for us. About 100 k's offshore from where I am in Mackay is the most extensive coral reef system on Earth. Back in 1981, the Great Barrier Reef was put on the World Heritage List for something called its outstanding universal value, a quality shared by other places like the Pyramids of Egypt and the Grand Canyon. UNESCO is the UN body that oversees these sites. And for a few years, it's been mulling over whether the reef should be put on its in-danger list. The idea being that it'd spur on more urgent action to protect it. And once the site is on this list, it could lose that heritage status entirely. But now UNESCO has recommended to hold off on making the decision for another year. It's terrific that UNESCO has recognised the strong action that our government has taken on the environment. This is Federal Environment Minister Tanya Plibersek. Now, the government and tourism operators who rely on people actually wanting to visit the reef were really hoping it would not be labelled in danger on the world stage. Of course I'm relieved because there's 64,000 jobs that rely on the, the reef in Queensland. But UNESCO still stressed that the reef is under serious threat from climate change and pollution and urgent action was still needed. It says the Aussie government has taken positive steps to protect the reef in the last 12 months. The biggest difference, of course, is our determination to act on climate change. They've singled that out as an important change, but of course, working with the Queensland government to improve water quality, to improve land management practices, improve fisheries practices, including banning gillnet fishing by 2027, all of these have contributed to this decision. Of course, this doesn't mean we sort of put our feet up and say, job done. We've got a really big job to do. 
part of that job will be to give UNESCO a progress report next February. And experts say we really can't become complacent. Climate change is the biggest threat and still the governments are lacking in their policies in addressing climate change. Here's Dr Lisa Schindler from the Australian Marine Conservation Society. One thing that they can do is both Queensland and Australia have very low emission reduction targets that they really need to strengthen and highly increase if they want to keep global warming to 1.5 degrees. So Australia is basically on notice now with a decision deferred until at least next year. In the meantime, a World Heritage Committee meeting is happening next month and that's when there'll be a vote on whether to uphold this recommendation. Hack on Triple J. That was Angel Parsons reporting there. With me, I have Professor Jodie Rummer. She's a marine biologist with James Cook Uni and she spends a lot of time on the Great Barrier Reef. Professor Rummer, thanks so much for coming on Hack. Thanks for having me. Just to start with, I think a lot of people listening to this would be quite confused by this decision not to declare the Great Barrier Reef as in danger. In your eyes, is the reef in danger? The reef is absolutely in danger. We know that the number one threat that the reef faces is due to climate change and these increasing in frequency and severity marine heat waves that the reef has been facing over the past couple decades, actually. Um, Regardless of the endanger listing outcome, uh, it has been delayed over and over and over again. The important and urgent conversation that we need to be having is regarding that severe threat that the Great Barrier Reef faces from accelerating climate change. And that's the number one threat that remains if we don't double down on our efforts to reduce emissions. And that has to happen this decade. Is it a political decision then not to list it? It can be seen as a political decision to list it or not list it, actually. Um, What that means in terms of our actions at the state level here in Queensland, at the federal level, as Australians, it means that we need to set that example to the rest of the world and let the rest of the world know that we are serious and that our government can take a stance by rapidly shifting us to clean energy and limiting our emission contributions so that we can properly protect the Great Barrier Reef, this national icon, and keep it as a World Heritage Site by UNESCO, which is extremely important to us. It's part of our identity. What are some of the other threats besides climate change that are facing the reef? Well, during this couple years of assessing the health of the Great Barrier Reef, there have been 10 items that have been noted, uh, things that we need to really deal with um, as, as Queenslanders, as Australians, in terms of protecting the health of the reef. However, the number one item on that list is related to the effects of warming. We've seen back-to-back bleaching events, which are related to the increased severity and frequency of marine heat waves on the backs of ocean warming, Um, 1998, 2002, and then already four times in my career here in Australia so far, back-to-back bleaching in 2016, 2017, 2020, and again last year in 2022. And the UNESCO monitoring mission has been assessing the condition of the reef since last March when we had this sixth mass bleaching event while it was actually occurring, while it was unfolding. And so we are well aware of that number one threat and what it has been doing to the the health of the Great Barrier Reef. The other threats are being addressed 
but they are so much lower down on the priority list. If we don't address warming, then these other threats aren't really going to matter nearly as much. We do need to have a concerted effort and a very integrative and collaborative approach to protecting the health of the reef, but we have to address the elephant in the room. Otherwise, everything is like putting Band-Aids on an arterial wound. Yeah, you mentioned that you've been working on the reef through a number of those other um, mass coral bleachings. How has it bounced back after each time? What changes have you noticed about how resilient it is around that? Well, we do have some corals that are able to to bounce back right away. These often happen, happen to be some of the coral species that are also the first to go when we have a heat wave event as well. So just because we do have coral regrowth after some of these heat wave events doesn't mean it's necessarily the species of corals that we need to maintain a rich biodiverse habitat that means a healthy gray barrier reef. Now, I work with coral reef fishes. I know what heat stress does to fish. It requires them to need a lot more energy. It requires them to initiate their stress response. It depletes their immune responses. It's an energetic tax to the entire marine ecosystem that can't be sustained over long periods of time. So when we are having these repeated heat waves without reprieve between them, without enough time for recovery, that's when we get really, really worried. We don't have that bounce back. Um, We're being told from some organisations already um, to be prepared for a very hot, dry summer coming up and there is talk of Australia declaring an El Nino. What would that mean for the reef? Well, we have already seen the World Meteorological Organisation, the WMO, declare El Nino for the Pacific. That happened on the 4th of July. We have been waiting and perhaps that's happening today with our own Bureau of Meteorology, the the bomb, declaring an official El Nino. We know that the bomb has very stringent conditions that are specific to our region that need to be met in order for them to do so. But during an El Nino, that's when we really do raise those alarm bells because there tends to be less cloud cover over the Great Barrier Reef. This means that sea surface temperatures become warmer. We're not getting the movement of that water around. And that's something I noticed when I experienced my first uh, coral reef bleaching event in 2016. Um, The warm water affects the, the corals, the reef, the organisms that live there a lot more Uh, dramatically, and they're not getting that cloud cover that also protects them from UV rays. So this is a greater likelihood for corals to become stressed, corals to bleach, and sometimes mortality or death as a result. And the federal government has said today that it's put a lot of work into um, and funding into addressing some of the other threats. And they did mention, um, you know, runoff, for example, changing some fishing practices. Have you noticed the impact of those changes on the reef? These are a lot of quick fixes that should have been done decades ago, to be honest. And the fact that we're addressing them now, they make us feel good. They are things that we can do very easily. They're tangible, where the ending of our reliance on, on fossil fuels seems like a much bigger problem to address. But that's what we need to do because we know that's what's worsening the impacts of climate change. And that's what's exacerbating these marine heat waves. So all of these other priorities on the list, they might be easy boxes to tick, 
but we do need to focus on that number one threat. And that means no new coal or gas without exception. We have to end those public sub subsidies for those fossil fuel companies, those that are doing the most damage and polluting the most and destroying the, the Great Barrier Reef. Professor Jody Rama, I really appreciate you coming on Hack and talking about this. Thanks for having me. That is Professor Jody Rama. She's a marine biologist with James Cook. Cook University and spends a lot of time on the Great Barrier Reef. Hack. I've been exonerated. It was a false positive, like I said all along. No one should ever experience what I've gone through this year on Triple J. Hey, you're listening to Hack. I'm Joe Lauder, filling in for Dave Marchese. Now, Australian athlete Peter Boll went from riding on top of the world after making it to the final in the Tokyo Olympics, being in the running for Young Australian of the Year, to being accused of doping and getting suspended. It all went down in January this year, and Peter Boll always said that the result was a false positive and that he's innocent. Now, seven months later, Sports Integrity Australia has dropped the investigation and cleared him. Now, to find out more about how this mistake happened, I've got Kieran Pender with me. He's a sports writer who contributes to The Guardian and he's also a lawyer. Kieran, thanks so much for coming on Hack. Pleasure. This must have been so damaging for Peter Boll and for his reputation to have this hanging over him for months now and then ultimately he's been found innocent. This investigation has been dropped. Even just the accusation hanging over him would have stuck somewhat. What went wrong here? It's been a huge mess by all accounts today. We've had Sport Integrity Australia coming out and announcing that it's dropped the anti-doping investigation into Australian middle distance sprint, uh, middle distance star Peter Bowl. Uh, where to start? Um, I guess the, the complexity here is um, Bowl was uh, found in his initial sample to have tested positive for synthetic EPO, which is a performance-enhancing drug. The problem is because EPO is also a naturally occurring substance in the body, the test regime for determining oh, whether it's synthetic or EPO or, or, or natural EPO is quite difficult. Um, and it seems like what's gone wrong here is that some of those testing issues have been a real mess. So that the first uh, a positive sample, the A sample, um, the, the testing said that it, it, it had synthetic EPO, then that the backup sample said that it, um, it was atypical. And then we've had this sort of big question mark hang over all of this. And then finally today, uh, Sport Integrity Australia, the anti-doping body in this country, has dropped the investigation and, and Bowles come out and said that he's been exonerated. And can you just explain the difference between the two samples and why there are two samples? Sure. So, I mean, for exactly this sort of reason, because athletes, of course, uh, an anti-doping accusation is a serious thing to, to make against an athlete. It can have career ending implications. And so naturally you want to make sure that you've got checks and balances in place. In this case, that initial sample um, found that there was synthetic EPO. Then the second sample found an, an atypical result and um, question marks are now being asked about that first sample and whether it was tested accurately, whether the testing regime is accurate. Uh, the, the World Anti-Doping Authority has come out today and said it will uh, assess the current process in light of the particularities of this case. And so whether that leads to wider changes, certainly a possibility. Uh, but uh, I guess in one respect, this shows that the system works. So we've, we've had the checks and balances and ultimately notwithstanding that positive 
a sample, bowls been vindicated, but he's had to go through this incredibly distressing process to get there. And so I think really questions must be asked about what happened in the first place, what went wrong with that test that's led to where we are now, whether it was the right decision for Sport Integrity Australia to make that public. I've heard arguments both for and against, and the impact that this has had on an Australian star athlete who, you know, there was talk um, at the time that he was in the running for potentially Young Australian of the Year, yeah. um, then to have this come out, to have this have tarnished his his reputation um, over the last eight months or so, that's been incredibly damaging. And hopefully he can now get back on track and, and get back to winning. And as you mentioned, at the time, his lawyers argued to the anti-doping authorities that the result shouldn't be made public while it was still inconclusive because it was just that sample A and they hadn't got the results back from the second sample. Given what we know now and what has transpired, what, what do you think of that case around not making the initial results public? I think Sport Integrity Australia are in a difficult position. They, as far as I'm aware, followed the right processes with Athletics Australia in relation to making that public. Um, I guess there's a question of whether those are the right processes and whether uh, uh, it should wait until the B sample comes through. The problem is because of a positive A sample, you're suspended from competition. And so if if Bowl stopped competing but nothing was said, then questions would be asked, of course. And so I'm not sure there's a a great scenario here. Nonetheless, this clearly has led to a uh, you know, significant reputational impact for Bowl. And even though he's now been vindicated, he's had to go through, it's had an impact on his performance, he's competing because he, he was suspended, then he took a while to get back into training. So clearly, you know, notwithstanding some of the complexities in any situation like this, questions have to be asked and, and questions have to be asked as to whether Sport Integrity Australia has the right processes and procedures in place. Yeah, and as you mentioned, not not just in terms of he wasn't allowed to compete, you're not allowed to formally train, isn't that right, while this is hanging, while you have kind of these processes and these accusations hanging over you. That would have a huge impact on your performance. Yeah, exactly. And j- just at the time when you need to be ramping up for the World Championships uh, for the, the European season and then leading into Paris next year. So definitely that sort of complete absence from from, from any form of sort of formal uh, you know, obviously it doesn't stop someone going for a run, but it, they're not allowed to have any participation in the formal processes. So that's been really damaging. Uh, Athletics Australia, the peak body, came out today and, and said the case raised very serious questions about the, the process that Peter Bowles has been trapped in, in no man's land for the last seven months and that he sort of really deserves an explanation. He's previously said that he's not considering taking legal action, that he just wants to get on with his life and hopefully return to the form that saw him um, shine in Tokyo. I think one of the saddest things, of course, for any athlete to suffer uh, a botch process like this is um, concerning and distressing. Um, but Peter was on cloud nine in, in Tokyo. I was there in Tokyo covering the Olympics for the Guardian. He put in such an amazing performances, series of performances in the 800 metres, you know, Australia in lockdown, COVID. Bowl inspired a nation. And for him then to have to go through this, uh, he's always said he's been innocent, and I guess he's now been um, vindicated in that. Um, you know, it couldn't have happened to uh, a nicer guy. Absolutely, Kieran. Thanks so much for coming on and breaking it down for us. A pleasure. That's Kieran Pender. He's a sports writer who contributes to The Guardian, and he's also a lawyer. Jared on the text line says, it's easy to make an accusation and not easy to clear it up. His professional career is probably kind of ruined over a false accusation. Let's hope that's not the case. 
Hack. This melody made me fall in love with classical music. On Triple Jack. Yeah, if you were to picture a crowd at a classical music gig, scan the seats around you, I reckon you'd imagine a lot of oldies, a lot of grey hair. You'd probably make some assumptions maybe even about their class. But classical music is having a comeback moment. A lot of the time, you might not even realise that you're listening to it. It might be film soundtracks, study music on YouTube, even trap beats. It's all part of the classical music ecosystem. Our reporter Nathan Nigidula has been chatting to some young composers about the Renaissance Renaissance, and he did write that for me. Classical music is making a comeback. People under 35 are actually more likely to be listening to classical than their parents. Think of your favourite film soundtrack, or even that study playlist you keep in the background. Everyone loves films. Everyone loves the highs of classical music. Everyone likes Star Wars, all that sort of stuff. Like, if you take the highs of all of classical music, I I don't know, I, I don't think there's anyone that it won't move. As someone who grew up in Western Sydney, I really didn't see very much of that growing up. All of that stuff can be quite daunting. The voices you're hearing are Demi and Kalish. They're a musical duo who just won an award for writing a classical music film score. Like me, they're in their early 20s, and they work out of a studio in Kalish's backyard, one he converted from an old shed. It's a beautiful space, lined with sound insulation, mixing desks, and a wooden piano. The size of the shed actually makes it feel super intimate, and they've had singers from the likes of Opera Australia record in there. In fact, the piano you're hearing now was just what Kalish was practicing when I showed up. I managed to get a piece of music that I wrote selected by the Sydney Concert Orchestra to be performed um, by them at one of their recent concerts. Yeah, so we had Como, um, which is the title of my film. It's a suite of themes that Kalish composed, which got chosen to be presented as a new work by a young composer. And I thought, well, the opportunity to actually write for a full-on symphony orchestra of like 70 people is um, exceptionally rare. Yeah, we heard it from them. They said that they were incredibly, they were really pleased that Kalish's piece got picked because it sounded like something of a Disney movie um, and it, it wasn't, you know, like it wasn't like some old crusty classical piece. It was a, a brand spanking new film score, Disney, oh yeah. <laughs> I did the whole orchestral mock-up thing, we call it, um, where you use software to create the sounds of an orchestra without actually having real players. Like, I would say 90, 95% of what I do is, is not with a real orchestra, again, because it's, it's such a rare opportunity. So mostly it's um, production skills. So what was it like hearing your music played live? Well, it's, it's the ultimate goal, isn't it? But actually sitting there and seeing 70-odd people do that together, I don't know, there's, like, it's like a recording can't do it justice. There's, there's something special about it. It's intangible. It's just, it's amazing. But there's still rules of what you should and shouldn't do during a classical concert. I think it just, it can feel a bit inaccessible sometimes because it's like, oh, eh, I don't know, what am I meant to listen to? What am I meant to do? I've never been to a concert before. You're meant to clap, like, 
Well, I don't want to look like a dickhead. You know, there's all that sort of stuff when it's actually not daunting like that. Just when you're, you know, you're watching a symphony and, yeah, people don't clap throughout the movement and so on. If you've never seen a concert at the Opera House, you don't know the rules necessarily. All of that is incredibly daunting. Demi and Kalish say that while classical is gaining popularity, there's still so much more room to break down barriers of accessibility and showcase Aussie talent. I think the biggest thing is accessibility. Young people seeing music. And the biggest barrier to that, honestly, it's not that people don't love it. Um, like we mentioned before, it's, it's really, really popular when it's accessible because of money. That's it. It's just, it's just, a, it's just a money thing. A lot of people, particularly in the classical world, will look to leave Australia because they're just, there aren't the same opportunities and the money is, is difficult to come by simply because we don't have the support. I was speaking with a couple of mates and one of them was from Italy. This is like an 18-year-old boy we're talking about and he was telling me about all the times him and his mates went to the opera together. When do you hear that here? That doesn't, it doesn't even happen here. Their special lunch date that they have together, they're within their <laughs> friendship circles, is, is a day at the opera. I can't think of anyone who does that in Sydney. Hack on Triple Jack. That was Nathan Nigidula reporting on the text line. Natalie in Melbourne says, classical music with rapping is overlooked and way underappreciated. Now, I've got Stephanie Cabanyana canyon Dequi with me. She's a presenter on ABC Classic. She's also a composer herself. Stefa, thanks so much for coming on Hack. Thanks so much for having me. I could talk to you about this all day. I can rap. Now, we just had some young composers chatting to Nathan about the classical music world and they were kind of talking about how accessible it is. Do you think it still has a bit of that hang-up of being pale, male and stale? Oh, it really does. And you took the words out of my mouth there, Joe, because that's exactly <laughs> what I said on Spicks and Specs. And can I tell you, my inbox is on fire as soon as I said that. But I stand by it. And especially as a black woman in the industry, I'm the only you know female African composer in Australia, period. It is an issue. And so the only way we can get through it and get over it is to, to name it and look at well, what are we doing to diversify audiences, but also diversify content. The big thing that I'm an advocate for is the fact that classical music has a bit of a branding issue. You know, a lot of people think of classical music as only being from Western Europe. But I'm here to tell you that that is absolutely not the case. Every culture has three types of music. So that's your secular, your weddings, parties, anything, your sacred or religious music and your art music or classical music. So that's the music of your courts, of your old people, your songmen the music that you want to pass on, important stories and information from generation to generation. So classical music is not just a Western European phenomena. And as soon as we start to open up that description and that definition of the term, well, then you realise it's, it's everywhere and it's absolutely for everyone. Are you noticing some of the different ways that young people are getting into classical music as well, like um, electronic music, gaming, um, you know, movie soundtracks? They, they seem so popular and it kind of, for a lot of people, it is a bit of a, aha, uh -huh, maybe I actually do like classical music moment. Well, absolutely. And again, it's all about the definitions, isn't it? Because, you know, even up to 10 years ago, people weren't calling music for the screen or music for games and video games classical music but now we've changed the definitions broad this out 
And so people are realizing, well, actually, this is for me. And it is a wonderful gateway to come into a world that's so broad. And it doesn't have to have, you know, instruments that are up on a stage in an orchestra. That could be a really awesome sound card and completely electronically made. So we have to be progressive in the way that we frame our understanding of classical music and exactly what gets us into it. And I have to say, you know, with, with gaming and screen in particular, that is where we see the biggest rise in young listenership. So there's some record numbers coming through for about 14 to 17-year-olds, particularly in Australia, in the fast-growing classical music audience. We just got a message from Mandy in Sydney and she says, I'd love to see a small classical stage at Splendour or another festival sometime, something in the middle of the day where you can just go and have fun and dance with your mates. I think that'd be a great way to make classical music more accessible. And that kind of goes to getting people to go to the live shows as well, right? Again, Stefan, kind of taking it to young people. What do you think of that idea? Yeah. I think that's a wonderful idea. I'm all for it. Please let me play at it. (laughs) I'd love to do that. I mean, I'm a composer and I'm a performer. Let's do this, right? But also, I mean, she makes a good point around access because traditionally, I don't know about you, Joe, but it's not always felt comfortable for someone who looks like me to rock into a concert hall where everybody's dressed a certain kind of way. No one looks like me. No one looks like they're remotely even my generation. So how, how am I going to feel comfortable getting to that spot, let alone the fact that, you know, sometimes you're spending like 100 120 bucks on a classical music ticket. That is not accessible for this kid, at least, because I grew up in housing commission houses. Like, I grew up poor and I grew up regionally, and it's only because I grew up regionally in the Northern Territory that I actually had rather cheap access to getting into classical music. As soon as I moved down south to do my degrees and my study and stuff like that, I realized a huge price difference and a social difference. People were not as comfortable with someone like me coming into into the room. So I think it's really important that we do look at how we're making this open to everybody. And I hope it's... Yeah, I I hope that is changing now and people like you are definitely changing that. We're going to run out of time, but Stefa, thank you so much. I wish we could keep talking about this. Let's do it another time. Thank you, Joe. <laughs> that was Stephanie Cabanyana Canyon Dequi. She's a presenter on ABC Classic and is also a classical music composer herself. That's it for Hack. Dave will be back tomorrow. Bye. Hack on Triple Jack.